Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the man with the barbed wire soul, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. I uh, Okay, I'm going to try and guess the tagline. I'm going to guess that it's some film about a musician. I'm going to say Tender Mercies. Oh, no, not a film about a musician. That oh. would require way too much forethought for me to have done that. It's HUD. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, I mean, that tagline for that film could just be, Paul Newman is a massive twat, um, <laughs> and it's basically trying to ruin everyone's life, um, and that would still be accurate. What, uh, sorry, a week off, apologies to everyone else, but yes, we had technical gremlins, I've moved house, and uh, my new house does not have adequate podcasting facilities, but I've uh, I've kind of had a word in the required ears and got them up to snuff, so you'll be pleased to know that I will be... Back online in a more echoey setting and perhaps because I've moved back to the hood, more <laughs> sirens and drag racing outside my window. Yeah, we're going to get some of that local colour that's been missing ever since you moved into a... When you had moved into a cul-de-sac that didn't have kind of police sirens re- rearing past at all hours of the day. Mm, the suburbs, man, they're just boring. Uh, I mean, it takes me back to like, you know, when we used to actually record in the same room together. Yeah. And in my in my noisy flat where, yeah, it was it was on the same road, coincidentally, that I'm back on now. Um, and yeah, it is a, a bustling part of uh, Sheffield, shall we say. But anyway, enough of that nonsense. What's been happening in the news this week, Ed? Welcome news in the week and surprising news. And it was announced that John Carpenter, who we're both fans of, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of film fans are kind of huge admirers of for his various sci-fi and horror works in the 70s and 80s, less so his work in the 90s and the 2000s. But then again, there's not a huge amount of it in the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, uh, he has announced that he is teaming up with Bloomhouse, the low-budget horror workshop, basically, to make a official 11th Halloween film, so ignoring the Rob Zombie remakes and making a new halloween film in the continuity of the original series i mean that's a it's exciting because john carpenter's back i mean i don't think he's directing as he's producing definitely but posing oh well that's good but um it's you know the 11th film of a franchise i'm not really sure what else there is to add unless he goes full halloween 3 on it and makes it some kind of anthology thing it they definitely say that it's going to be a michael myers one because he was not particularly happy with the way that Rob Zombie treated the character, particularly in his second film where it goes into his backstory and it's all about him being a sad child who then happened to, you know, murder lots of people. Mm-hmm. And so this is more about, and his idea is that, you know, the whole thing with Michael Myers is he's a thing, he's a force. He goes around and he kills people. And mm-hmm. that's essentially what they want to do this time is they want to get back to that kind of more elemental thing and, uh, like, like you say, he's only producing, but he's going to be helping them pick whoever directs it. He's going to be composing and he's going to be very involved with shaping the, the new uh, installments in the series that he created nearly 40 years ago and which he has basically been not involved with since 1983. Mm, ben Wheatley for the job, please. Uh, that would be interesting. That would be a good one. I was thinking a nice one would be someone like Jeremy Solnier, who is... Mm. Uh, that's probably not how you pronounce his name, but who, who is behind uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room. I think that if you want to get someone who's good at tension and maybe a bit of black comedy, then he would definitely be an interesting choice. 
We've been over this, though. He can't make a film that's not a colour followed by a noun. Oh, yeah. They could rename it Yellowween. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ween's more of a verb. Uh, that's yeah. the problem. But, yeah, and then we get into a whole kind of, like, nursing issue. And Well, I mean, that could probably explain a few things about Michael Myers. Well, my, maybe that's the new direction they go in, is that Michael Myers decides to hang up his knives and goes into the medical profession. Hmm, yeah. Imagine Michael Myers, played by Mike Myers. <laughs> directed well, by Nancy Myers. Well, he's they're all in need of a career comeback, so I think we've we've settled on the package that will finally kind of bring the Halloween uh, franchise back into focus. Mm, absolutely. We'll take our ten percent, thanks. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's just, uh, I mean, I've changed the dress, but you know, the name's the same. <laughs> bank account number hasn't changed. There's been some news on the True Detective front this week, and it's depending on your point of view, either bad news or merciful news. Yes, it was announced kind of in an interview with the new head of uh, of programming at HBO that a third season of True Detective is now unlikely to happen, mm-hmm. which is as close to cancelled as it seems you seem to get with HBO these days, unless you're looking, I guess. Um, mm. uh, and essentially, it seems to be them hedging their bets of think of saying yes, the second season was terrible, or or at least lots of people didn't like it, and it didn't have the same cultural cachet that the first season did, and that we maybe want to continue with it at some uh, undetermined time but at the moment we're looking we're investing our energies in other things Mm. and i mean i i thought it was kind of a merciful kind of way of dealing with it and Mm. i felt that way because we've talked about this and and true detective 2 was um not only disappointing but it was uh kind of dispiriting the way Mm. that it kind of took everything that was good about the first show and everything that separated it from the usual crime thriller and removed it all and made the usual crime thriller um, that didn't have really much of interest going on, which is, you know, not what was expected um, and makes it look all, all the more like a fluke. And then I, mean, I kind of kept thinking, you know, is it worth having a third season to kind of redeem it because it's an anthology and you can do whatever you want with it. It doesn't have to have anything hanging over. Um, you can kind of reboot it if you'd like. But then I thought, well, maybe it's just a, just a one and out, you know, that first season was, something special and we should just be thankful that that existed. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same mindset, especially because the second, I think there was a lot of stuff, a lot of potential in the second season, like the cast I thought was a really strong one and that they all in individual episodes kind of brought something to it where you thought, okay, this show could be great if they were on this level every time, or if they were given more interesting material Mm -hmm. and it just never coalesced into anything all that interesting and uh you you kind of feel okay maybe with a different cast a third season could be really good but then also you're thinking well it's still going to be the same creator and the second season seemed to be him in some ways being a bit too reflexive about the criticisms of the first season which ended up spoiling anything so you can only imagine what the third season would be like if he took all this criticism and then just responded even kind of strong more strongly Hmm. Yeah, maybe someone's just lock him in a bunker for several years so he doesn't actually hear what anyone's saying about him or the show and just see what he comes up with. Yeah, or, you know, just... I mean, the problem is also that it, because it's so tied up in Nick Pizzolatto, you couldn't just say, OK, we're going to bring in a different showrunner. Because maybe that would have been the best way to do it is, like, the true detective banner. They would just bring in different writers every year and you get someone who, like, I don't know, like a Neil Gaiman or something, and say, what idea would you like to do as a TV show for for eight episodes and then just let them do whatever they wanted, expecting one writer with kind of a small 
team assisting him to crank out an entirely new original show every year was probably not the smartest approach. Mm, yeah, yeah. Didn't really work out for him. Kira Knightley's been in for a bit of uh, a rough time this week. Why is that? Well, there was an interview published with John Carney, who, for people who don't know, uh, is the director of Once, which is a lovely film um, that turned into a great musical. And he also directed a film called Begin Again, which was essentially Once Again, but with slightly <laughs> bigger cast, uh, bigger names and a different setting. But it was in many ways essentially the same film. And it was a film that was, I think, quite warmly received. Uh, it wasn't mm. a film that I feel got slated. It got slated in comparison to Once, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't universally loved, but it was a film I think a lot of people were kind of okay with. Um, but he's got a new film called Sing Street out, which is a, uh, is kind of closer to once in scale. It's lots of kind of relative unknowns and it's more lo-fi. And he's been doing lots of press for it. And he got into an interview where he was just spent a long part of it slagging off Kira Knightley for starring in Begin Again. And mm-hmm. ended up by saying that uh, he, the thing he learned from it was, quote, never to work with supermodels ever again. I mean, I'm going to kind of step in here and uh, kind of say, I mean, that's unnecessary. I mean, I don't really know what's gone on between him and Miss Knightley. Mm. But uh, I feel like Kira Knightley gets a bad rap because she seems to kind of turn up in kind of corseted cucumber sandwich fare or <laughs> or kind of just like kind of asinine nonsense. But the thing is, she's actually a really good actor who I think is kind of cast 90% of the time in the wrong role. Yeah, I mean, she's she like you say, talking about being in like period dramas and stuff. She has been good in a few of them, and and it's reflected in the fact that she was nominated for her two Oscar. Uh, she got her two Oscar nominations for it in Pride and Prejudice and Atonement. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of like stuck her in that, and she would do things like The Duchess or whatever, and they don't really push her that much. But when you see her show up in other stuff, like I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the David Cronenberg film, but A Dangerous Method. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't think that's a very good film, uh, but I think she gives a great performance in it where she's really going for this kind of big, crazy performance that's really kind of broad and almost kabuki-like in how huge it is. And it it works, you know, in terms of that film. And it's one of those things where you think, you know, she can really push herself and when a director asks her to do really interesting things. And most directors clearly just look at her and think, okay, she looks good in a corset, so we're just going to put her in some kind of literary adaptation Mm, yeah she kind of gets stuffed into the kind of waif role Mm. whereas i mean even in something like pirates of the caribbean where that's not a hard day at the office really she's got charisma and i mean that is opposite orlando bloom yeah yeah so she hasn't really got to uh, compete much but Mm. uh, she does she does have kind of a real movie star quality that's kind of rare these days which is just as soon as she's on screen she is arresting but often the material isn't good enough and yeah, I think that in in this instance, there definitely seems to have been a mismatch between artist and material because John Carney also said, you know, like, oh, she couldn't have played the role because the role is a musician and she's not a musician. But that seems uh, a little bit strange because then he would also praise Adam Levine, who's in the film and plays a musician. And uh, as anyone who has seen Begin Again will tell you, he is terrible in that film. Mm, he is absolutely yeah. awful. And yeah. It's kind as uh, as uh, there was a, a great studio executive who once said about someone, "I wouldn't want them in my wedding video," and uh, <laughs> that, that is how I would describe Adam Levine. So I wouldn't cast him as Adam Levine. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's essentially what he's playing. And he's just incredibly kind of bland and awful. And Kira Knightley, I think, was just... Uh, I, I feel like any problem in her performance is more John Carney's fault than hers, because I don't think he... If if all he thinks is, oh, I need to hire musicians and then like act, get them to act like musicians, then he's not really working too well as a director of actors. Like He mm. should be the one telling her, okay, you're doing this wrong, or this is what I want you to do. Mm. And, and the problems in that film are rest with him as a writer and director and not with her as an actress. Yeah, I mean, he also cast James Corden and Mark <laughs> Ruffalo, who are both famous non-musicians in, mus- in musician roles. Yeah, so it's not... It just seemed it just came across as incredibly kind of bitter and weird and sexist for him to go after her as being the sole thing because she happened to be the only person on that film who was like a genuine kind of movie star. Obviously, Ruffalo's in like Avengers films and stuff, but I kind of get the feeling that he is still maybe more of just like a character actor who occasionally gets to do like be in multi-billion-dollar earning movies. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, rock stars in films, uh, we're talking about that this week in the finale of our three-part series on sex, drugs and rock and roll. And we thought that there'd be no better place to start than talk about perhaps the finest film made with rock stars in it, the All Saints movie Honest, which started this whole shebang off uh, all those kind of months ago when you uh, actually found out that it was a real thing and I wasn't joking. And then (laughs) the more we kind of peeled back the layers the weirder it got with dave stewart being the director and yeah a whole bunch of other things that kind of a huge budget for a british film and just completely disappeared off the map um but we found it we never unearthed it and we thought well we'll give it a, a shake and see what happens um and we both watched it didn't we ed and um it's awful isn't it it is it, it's truly truly terrible it's a kind of the maybe the worst version of those kind of post Guy Ritchie gangster films that all started cropping up in the late 90s and early 2000s where um, the basically everyone saw that Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch had been successful so everyone started making kind of way geezer <laughs> kind of gangster films and mm. they all tried to be kind of postmodern and edgy with it and you know in some cases that worked you got something like sexy beast which is an amazing movie and like the the absolute best outcome of like people suddenly jumping on a trend Mm -hmm. but then you also get stuff like this where when you kind of look at the disparate elements you kind of think okay there's an interesting story to be told here but then the person who has decided to tell that story uh doesn't seem to have watched a film yeah yeah i always think of sexy beast as in relation in the to get British gangster movies of the nineties and two thousands, in the same way that I think about OK Computer coming out of Britpop, right? In the sense that it has literally nothing to do with the ten years that preceded it, mm-hmm. but couldn't have existed without it. Yeah, um, and everything else that went before that, like Britpop, threw out zero good albums, but OK Computer kind of came out at the end, and everyone was like, "Oh, we should stop doing what they're doing now," because. <laughs> This is like good music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, it almost yeah. justifies the existence of Ocean Colour Scene, but not quite. Uh, exactly, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's going too far. That's just, you're a monster. <laughs> what can I say? Um, but yeah, Honest is kind of, it stars not all the All Saints. Chazney dodged the bullet, <laughs> literally and figuratively um, in this case. But uh, Melanie Blatt and the two Appleton sisters kind of take the lead as, as kind of three uh, good old East End girls who um, steal from the rich and don't redo anything with it. They're just fanny about being kind of like art gangsters. Uh, there's a whole thing with 
um, like a kind of Andy Warhol type factory scene, uh, which is really embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, the the guy who plays the kind of the Andy Warhol of that scene, his the actor's name is, is Jonathan Cake, <laughs> mm-hmm. which sounds like a name from Nathan Barley. Uh, yeah. The 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 kind of the the lead other than the All Saints is uh, a guy called Peter Fascinelli, who I wrote in my notes and described him as the pound shop Christian Bale. Um, but then I looked up looked him up on IMDb. And he's in the Twilight movies. He is. He's the head vampire, I guess, of the Coven yeah, Clan. So he came out of it. I mean, he came out of it with something, I guess. But yeah, the, the film, like because it's in that post-Lockstock kind of vibe, it's got all those uh, kind of like freeze frames and kind of different frame rates and mm. kind of like directorial ticks that all of those directors mistakenly kind of took for, you know, good storytelling. But it's really just annoying and kind of seizure-inducing idiocy. And I watched it, and I kind of suddenly was jolted out of the story, but kind of kept watching anyway. And then before realising that my DVD had skipped on 25 minutes, <laughs> and because <I>, <laughs> there were so many nonsensical turns, they were all going to like a festival or something, and then it just cut to a bank robbery, mm-hmm. uh, no, a jewellery heist. And I was like, oh, okay, that's... And then there was a dream sequence in a fountain, and I was like, oh, cool, man. This is just moving through the gears, I guess. But no, I'd missed 25 minutes of story out, which says an awful lot about the film. Yeah, I mean, that that just reminded me of when you and I watched the first four Twilight films and we didn't realise that the sound had gone off on one of them because mm. uh, we were watching it and we were thinking, oh, this is like, this is actually quite a nice bit of director choice here just to kind of have lots of silence at the start of the film. And then you realised that the sound wasn't working and that we were missing a load of terrible expositionary voiceover. Yeah. And you kind of feel like, when films are really incompetently made, yeah, you anything feels like it's intentional because you look at it and you think someone's made all of these choices and they don't really understand what they're doing. And in the case of Dave Stewart, that happens pretty much from the off. Like you say, there's lots of like freeze frames and things like that. And also there is just kind of these these moments that are kind of really laughable. Like at the beginning, they... The, the three sisters uh, and also um, I think it's kind of implies that well, but this does take place in like 60s London. So there's lots of swinging 60s cliches going on. <laughs> yeah. um, but it starts with them robbing like a guy who's just like a night watchman and they run in and they have these masks, which are like paper mache masks, paper mache masks with newspaper type on it. And I think Natalie Appleton has like psycho written across her forehead and stuff. And it's one of those things where you look at it and you think, this is trying a little too hard. This is a little too... It was like, oh, this is like Suicide Squad before Suicide Squad happened. Um, mm. Where you just literally are placing character traits on people's foreheads. Uh, and and in, in the world of the film, it's kind of justified by the fact that they're just trying to be really intimidating because they are three not especially kind of physically intimidating girls. But it also comes across, across as trying way too hard. Mm. And you kind of say about someone who doesn't know what they're doing. It's fair to say that the All Saints uh, acting ability across the board exists somewhere between kind of Children's Ward and Grange Hill um, and not in a good way. Um, And also Dave Stewart's kind of uh, mastery of cinema language is um, second to pretty much everyone who was made a film ever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and... The thing that was kind of disappointing to me about it, because when you kind of describe it as like the members of All Saints in a period gangster movie that takes place in the in kind of like the swinging swinging London and also features like uh, people taking hallucinogenic drugs and stuff, it sounds like it should make 
for kind of entertaining so bad that it's good kind of quality. But for the most part, it's just kind of a little dreary. Mm. Although I would recommend, if you would like to up the camp enjoyment of Honest, um, put the subtitles on. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I, as aforementioned, have moved into a new house. It's very noisy. So I had the subtitles on um, to hear it over the traffic noise from outside. Because I watched it quite late at night. And there's something about bad dialogue when you see it written down Mm -hmm. (laughs) is just like even better, especially when there's a a sequence with a lobster that uh, is talking in Hitler's voice. Yes, that is the absolute, that is the absolute best moment in the film where you clearly can tell that no one at any point has really thought this idea through, which is that Mm. Peter Fascinelli is having lunch with his kind of parents who are over visiting and are annoyed that he's dropped out of college to write, um, something for yeah, a magazine. Yeah, still don't, still don't know what he does. Yeah, because he says at one point he's writing a review. He says he has to write film reviews because he starts and he's like talking about going to watch a film at like 10 in the morning. But then mm-hmm. later on, he's like staying in there, the office of this magazine late at night and he's like writing. And he said he's writing a review when he's reading it out. It's like some treatise about the, the, the culture of the moment and everything like that. And you think, I don't really understand what his job is. He's just... yeah, he's also an artist as well, isn't he? He's like drawing yeah. and doodling all the time. He's just like, uh, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, but he, he's, at, he's at this dinner with his parents and he's still having the after effects of this acid. And then he looks down at the lobster they brought and it suddenly transforms from red to black and then starts lifting its claw up. And then you hear archive audio of Hitler speaking. <laughs> And it's insane. It's like a completely crazy choice that makes no sense. But it's so funny for how little it fits in with anything else in the film. Um, mm. and, and when you talk about like the, the dialogue as well being bad, the thing that's I think that explains why the film is is really terrible is that it's written by um, Ian Clement and uh, wait, what Ian no, Dick Clement and Ian the Ian the Frenet. Yeah, the, who are kind of like British sitcom writers who have written like loads and loads of things over the years and they've, they've occasionally dabbled in these kind of comedic gangster films like the bank job with jason statham mm-hmm. and clearly they're writing a comedy and clearly dave stewart is shooting a drama mm. and i think and the that, actors are acting something entirely different yeah the actors are acting an episode of eastenders yeah and it's clear that there's no synchronicity between the words on the page the person behind the camera and the people in front of it uh, mm. And that's kind of why it kind of occasionally has this this feeling of kind of so bad that it's good, but for the most part, it just kind of feels incoherent. Yeah, and it is it is so jarring at times, and the stuff that makes no like if you looked away from the screen for five minutes and then came back to it, you'd be just baffled as to what's happening. Yeah, there's just really jarring sex scenes in it. Um, I mean, I think. I read a, uh, an archive interview with, uh, no, sorry, kind of a review of the film, and they were kind of saying how uh, the film cost like four and a half million pounds, which for wow. a British film now is expensive, but a British film kind of 15 years ago is very expensive. Um, and it took nowhere near a million pounds. It really mm. did kind of like die on its ass. But they were thinking that like All Saints as a band had a kind of a built in teen audience at the time. And, you know, there was potential there to make a slightly more lighthearted gangster film with those guys in it. But then you get these kind of really jarring moments of violence and, like, kind of sex, which make no sense to the story or the characters. And then kind of 
Dave Stewart accused the media of uh, kind of building up uh, the kind of hyping up the sex scene so that the censors would give it an 18 rating. And I was like, well, there's only really one person responsible for that because you've shot this in the most kind of like gratuitous style you possibly can. It has no place in any of it. And it's just weird. And yeah, I mean, I'd put a kind of 18 on it just to stop people seeing it, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right about like the violence stuff because there is actually a subplot about um, their neighbour being domestically abused by a boyfriend. Yes, played yeah. by a woman whose name I don't know, but I know that she was one of the Slovene in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and that's like really it, it. It is indicative of how weird the tone is because there'll be there's a scene where they like cut off his beard when he's asleep in order to kind of use it to make no they cut off some of his hair so that they mm-hmm. can make themselves these fake beards so they can go around london and people think they're just kind of very small men when they go <laughs> on their jobs very, like, oh they're not suspicious that's just a group of very small men <laughs> <laughs> and they um they they kind of cut his beard off in like the 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 woman who is got a black eye because clearly she's been punched in a scene that happened before the film started is like just kind of looking over like kind of thinking oh this is some impish fun and then later on she's been like chained to a motorbike and she's clearly just been apt, had the shit kicked out of her and it's like trying to be really really serious and it's not it's it's really weird that you go from this kind of like larks to nil by mouth and you know mm. that's there's no film that could encompass the shifts in tone as well and you know this is clearly someone who doesn't really have an understanding of how you shift between different tones Mm, yeah quickly and jerkily uh, yeah. i think that's that's mr stewart's mo um but also uh just on a final note is i watched it all, all the way to the end and there is a cover of you're all i need that plays mm. over the end credits performed by natalie appleton and bootsy collins yes bootsy collins also appears when they go to that weird festival and it's uh a, a rare highlight because you're just kind of like oh bootsy collins Oh, I didn't... That went over my head. Yeah. Um, And I was like... But at the time, I probably could have thought, oh, that's probably Bootsy... This is the kind of film that you think, oh, there's Bootsy Collins, and it wouldn't be the weirdest thing that had happened because it had been preceded by a scene of domestic violence and a scene with a lobster. Yeah. um, But also, like, my final thought, I I just remembered the the moment in the film that made me laugh the most. It happens really near the end, so I I don't mind spoiling this because no one's ever going to watch the film. Um, but it's, it's it's an amazing kind of weird moment where they've like the the, the Appleton sister, the, all the sisters and their dad have escaped from the country. They've stolen all of these diamonds and they've escaped to France and they're being chased by the Irish neighbor from Shameless, who's playing like a South like a South American drug lord or something. And who's inexplicably red. Yes, his skin is red, and he's like tracked them down and he's holding. Uh, <laughs> He's holding Peter Fascinelli with, I think, like a machete or something. He's got a machete next to him and he's caught up to them and he doesn't realise that the old man who's with them is their dad. So he pretends to be French and he holds up a watermelon (laughs) and he like holds the watermelon towards the guy with the machete, indicating like, oh, could you like chop this in half for me? (laughs) And in the middle of what is meant to be like a tense scene where this this like psychopath is like deciding what to do, he just kind of shrugs and says, all right. And he takes the... Uh, he takes the machete away from Peter Fascinelli's neck and then Peter Fascinelli just punches him in the face and knocks him <laughs> down. And the way that this is indicated that this is kind of a knockout blow is that it cuts directly from 
him being punched in the face to the watermelon smashing on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Is... But then also, do you remember it cuts straight to uh, Nicole Appleton repeatedly kneeing him in the crotch for about three minutes? Yes. So it's, <laughs> but it's like, it's the most kind of, not even film school, this is the most like sixth form film studies understanding of symbolism and montage <laughs> I have ever seen in a professionally produced movie. And it mm. is amazing to see how terribly <laughs> assembled it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. I never thought I'd say it, but you know, if the All Saints and the Spice Girls were the Beatles and Rolling Stones of that girl band <laughs> movement, these guys just made Spice World like a hard day's night. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> those, you know, put those two films neck to neck, and uh, you know, Spice World is fucking Chinatown in comparison. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It is really, really dreadful. Um, there's a few. If you can watch a montage of the best scenes on YouTube, I think that'd probably be the best use of your time. I can't imagine ever asking anyone other than you and I asking each other to watch the whole thing all the way through. But mm-hmm. amidst the dreariness, there are kind of these little gems of kind of pure incompetency that is is really entertaining to see happen. Yeah, it is a bafflingly stupid film. And if you do have the means to enjoy it, I mean, I know that DVD sales doubled uh, with you, you and I getting a copy. So maybe there'll be a Blu-ray on the horizon if there is. Me and Ed are available for a commentary. We'll do it. And that's fine. But yeah, honest, there's surely better rock star films out there, Ed. And it's not really a new thing, is it? It's been happening since uh, since the very early days of, of kind of like, well, the classic Hollywood era anyway. Yeah, I mean, you can track it all the way down to, and there are probably earlier examples of this even, but like the earliest I could think of would be someone like Ivan Novello appearing in The Lodger and a bunch of other films in the early 20s, because obviously he was a songwriter and a singer. He was kind of very famous in Britain for his musical talents, and then he just kind of transitioned into into acting in uh, into movies when they kind of became a thing. And if you go through history, there's lots of people who, who kind of, Jump between the two, you have uh, Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin in Rio Bravo is probably the best example of two musicians appearing in a film because it's a great film and they're both really good in it. Uh, and mm-hmm. it and it manages to at least justify the often standard thing of old westerns where someone breaks out a guitar and starts singing. Um, Elvis, of course, had a kind of a very successful career appearing in acting in movies and you know, um, Viva Las Vegas and. Uh, jailhouse rock and everything um mm-hmm. david bowie appeared in a bunch of movies over the course of his career ice cube more recently you know lots of rappers make the transition you people like ice cube and ice t method man's you know and stuff all the time the rizza has acted in and written and directed movies you know so there's the membrane between kind of musician pop star rock star and you know actor filmmaker has always been very permeable Mm, I think in the uh, in the past, where musicals were more prevalent, I think there was perhaps a higher emphasis on stars having more than one string to their bow. And also because in the early days of cinema, certainly in the early days of sound cinema, when a lot of silent movie stars ended up having to retire because their voices didn't work on screen or just because like the work dried up for whatever reason there was the, the where they went is to the stage and stage actors particularly in america you know if you were on broadway chances are you were a bit of a song and dance man you'd be someone like james cagney who obviously when he went into cinema was, was more famous for being a 
for being a tough and for being a hood and everything, but who was a incredible dancer and a great singer at the same time, and occasionally got to do that in things like Yankee Doodle Dandy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, it hasn't changed. I mean, my, my wife went to drama school and you know had to sing in her audition. You have to have uh, you know more than two feathers in your cap, as it were, be able to do all those things. So it's no surprise when uh, rock stars go the other way, and also when actors kind of suddenly have a pop career. Uh, mm. such as, a, you know, your kind of J-Lo's, your Lindsay Lohan's, your Kylie Minogue's, because their kind of the training is 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 kind of threefold. Brie Larson, most recently. Brie Larson? Yeah, Brie Larson had uh, released an album a couple of years ago, so at the same time that she was kind of trying to make it as an actor, she was also uh, kind of pursuing the pop star thing, ah. which is probably something that won't get mentioned very much now that she's got the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, keep that keep that quiet. <laughs> It'd be embarrassing in years to come. Um, so, what is the kind of the gold standard of, of of the rock star kind of crossing over? And I'm gonna kind of put a hard and fast rule that I don't want uh, the rock star to be considered an actor in their own right. I want right. them to be a rock star first, actor second. Uh, well, I think that in a lot of cases, I think probably the absolute pinnacle version of this would be kind of star vehicles something like hard days night which you've already mentioned where what you essentially do is you get uh, musicians who uh, are kind of huge stars for doing the musician thing and then you say okay we're going to cast you as yourselves and you're going to play versions of yourselves in this movie that's based on your life and that's probably the best example because it's a really great movie that knows how to use the kind of witty kind of interplay and banter of the of the Beatles to great effect and also a film which understands their dynamic as a group, such as the fact that people very quickly kind of uh, crowded Ringo out Mm -hmm. uh, and viewed him as the untalented one because John and Paul wrote most of the songs. George wrote a few, but Ringo was just kind of there on the drums and people would make jokes about him not being the best drummer in the world. He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, uh, which I believe was John Lennon's term to describe him. And uh, so in the film they have that where at one point Ringo just kind of goes wanders off and is a bit of a sad sack and mm. that is I think probably one of the best examples because it's not just a case of understanding what the actors can what the performers can do as actors but understanding how to place their distinct personas on screen mm. I'm going to throw in in terms of considering a gold standard two films by the same director go for um, performance by Nicholas Rogue mm-hmm. uh, with Mick Jagger, which is perhaps the right way to do a gangster film with rock stars in. Uh, mm-hmm. Please, Mr. Dave Stewart. And also The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie, which essentially casts David Bowie as an extraterrestrial, which is seems accurate. Yeah, in both cases, what you you have directors doing is taking the either the specific persona that has already been created by the artist in question or the general idea of what they are and then you basically have that be the character in the case of performance the rolling stones had put out an album called their satanic majesty they're essentially just perceived as being like the bad boys of rock and roll there was something kind of sinister about them if you listen to something like paint it black you know the sitar on that does sound genuinely demonic so what you do is you take him and you say okay we're going to have you play this kind of dissolute rock star who tempts this guy who's on the run from gangsters and it's it fits perfectly with what Mick Jagger can do it doesn't require a huge amount from him but he is able to kind of project this kind of undefined kind of allure and menace in a in a way that uh, I don't think 
someone without the kind of the baggage of who he is would have been able to do quite as well. Mm. And Bowie did kind of genuinely trade on, or was to certainly sought out for that otherworldly thing. I mean, even stuff like the Prestige, him mm. him as Nikola Tesla is is amazing casting. That's that's ninety percent of your job done there. Yeah, you do get the sense that he is someone who is seen beyond our world in some way and really does kind of like defy like the conventions of his era and really just doesn't seem to really connect with anyone else in the film in a way that uh you know would be a a detriment in like a more straightforward movie but a film like that which is kind of playing a shell game with the audience and where uh, every character is starting to meddle in forces they don't understand it fits really really well Mm, yeah what about films about rock stars how well does a kind of a narrative feature film do telling a kind of dramatic version of a rock and roll story for instance something like oliver stone's the doors how Mm. successful is that rather than listening to a doors album i mean i will say right now that i think the doors is essentially six form poetry in a frilly shirt and leather trousers but uh how successful is that at translating what the doors are about over listening to an album uh, well, I would rather watch The Doors than listen to them, though I'm in very much the same <laughs> position as you are. I think watching The Doors is the closest I've ever come to understanding the appeal of The Doors, that and reading like Joan Didion's essay about them, like where, mm. you, where you see someone who clearly uh, is understands what The Doors mean to them and they're trying to articulate it in a way that uh, is, is more or less successful, but still leaves me thinking, I come away thinking, okay, I can see why someone would like them, but I still don't. Mm-hmm. And I feel that is, in some ways, kind of the best thing that you can expect from a movie about a real-life band. Is like, if you're not a fan, you come away appreciating why people would be. If you are a fan, you, you have your love kind of reciprocated. So, like a film from last year, Straight Outta Compton would be a good example of, of that, where like I went to see that with my mum, who doesn't know anything about kind of rap music. She knew who N.W.A. were. She more East Coast rap is that is that yeah. thing? Yeah, she was she was definitely more into kind of like Biggie than Tupac, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like she didn't she doesn't know their music or anything, and she doesn't really understand the story. She didn't know the story of them, but like afterwards, she was like saying that was really exciting. I can really kind of she as kind of like a kind of a a British kind of woman who went to David Cassidy concerts in her youth kind of could really see the appeal and what why people would really like Straight Outta Compton and, and why they would like NWA and why that story is important in kind of both the, the late 80s and also the kind of the cultural moment now. Um, I'm, I'm kind of just picturing you and your mum coming out of Straight Outta Compton and she, her being like, motherfucker, that was excellent. <laughs> I mean, I'm just picturing that. I just, it just, that just tickles me immensely. The thing is, she could have shouted that in the theatre because we were the only two people in there because it was like at 10, 10, 10, 10 a.m. a few weeks yeah. after the film had come out. Um, mm. But yeah, it's like I think that is a really good example of one where the appeal of the band comes across through the the speed and the um, the pacing and just kind of the overall filmmaking uh, technique used to sell the story. What about uh, rock documentaries? There are so many great ones. And the the kind of line is so long that you've got to start realising that there is something they're doing right that other films aren't. Well, I think, again, one that I watched kind of fairly recently and I think also falls into the kind of the Doors kind of spectrum was The History of e- of the Eagles, which is mm-hmm. a 
four hour documentary i think about the the eagles you know one of the biggest bands of all time and a band who i don't particularly care for i felt you know i hate the fucking eagles man you know yeah, um, yeah me too and they are i've always thought of them as a kind of a very boring band but through the sheer amount of information being put across in the documentary through the interviews and everything and just through like really just at a certain point stockholm syndrome because it's so long you do come away from that documentary thinking okay I may not like this band, I may not like this kind of music all that much, but again, I can see why they were one of the most successful bands of all time and why people still like them. Uh, mm. And you get a sense of the personalities of different people and you kind of understand their conflicts and things like that. And I think that is, that's an example of ones uh, where it, it works really well, certainly in a retrospective sense of looking at a band that um, either don't exist anymore who or who have kind of obviously hit their peak many years ago, where you kind of get a sense of who they were as people rather than having just people just constantly sit there and say, yeah, they were great and not really offer any kind of particular insight or they don't really offer anything that you as a fan or a non-fan don't already know. Mm. I think uh, there's some kind of weird ones that sometimes a documentary will become the defining moment of that band. Mm. And I'm thinking that a lot of people only know the band from the last waltz yeah which if you are a fan of the band such as me it's kind of like that's not really what they were about and what was going on that seems to be like a false document of their time and i wonder if people now feel the same way about kind of the dandy warhols and and um the brian jonestown massacre yeah I was going to um, because dig is you know a great film and a kind of seems to be a defining film for both of those bands but i can't imagine either band being particularly happy with it no, because I definitely felt like when that film came out, the Dandy Warhols were just at their peak because they, they just had the um, Bohemian Like You had come out and it had been used in that phone advert. Mm-hmm. And so it was like they were huge and in the stratosphere and all I knew about them was they were a band who had recorded a song that uh, had been used in a in an advert. And then when I saw the film, it's like, oh, these guys are just pricks. Uh, <laughs> and it, that it does completely redefine what you would think about the band. And obviously you can weigh also thinking... You know that um, Anton, um, whatever his name, Newcomb, Newcomb, yeah, not Yelchin. It's no, not, it's not Chekhov. Um, yeah, Anton, Anton Newcomb. You can wait thinking he's an even bigger prick, but he at least seems to have some ambition. Whereas mm. you do kind of come away from Dig thinking the Dandy Warhols are just uh, so it's quote an old pavement song, elegant bachelors. You know they do just kind of seem kind of these little dilettantes who played in this scene for a little while until they could sign a huge record contract yeah yeah yeah. um there's a film that uh not many people have seen but i will uh talk about it in the sense that i saw this film before i listened to any of the music related to it and i probably don't want to listen to any of the music um, related <laughs> by this artist it's the film hated uh which is about the punk singer i guess i could call him gg allen who right. if you uh don't know uh was fucking insane <laughs> um, and would regularly, and this is in the film, regularly kind of like shit on stage and roll around at it, then kick his audience and assault them and smash bottles over his head and roll around in the blood. And, you know, he's a man who really did practice what he preached. He died of a heroin overdose at an after-show party, and everyone thought he just passed out, so posed for pictures with his body. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> mm. um, and I saw this film about him when I was about, like, 15. It was just on Channel 4, like, one in the morning, and I was like, what the fuck? fuck is this but it's awesome but i know i'm not gonna 
download him on Apple Music. I don't think I'm not sure it's on there if I'm if I'm perfectly honest. But that's a great kind of snapshot of a musician that is like that's someone ordinarily that you would never encounter. Um and it's not elevating him to kind of hero status or misunderstood status. It's very critical of him. But yeah, it's a it's a kind of a fascinating look at something you ordinarily wouldn't know anything about. I suppose that's the same thing with Dig. Like I saw that film and I knew who the Dandy Warhols were, but I had no idea who the Brian Jones that massacre were. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a, a good, I think, example of that as well, of, someone, of, a, of a film about a band whose music I have no interest in and would never ever buy, would be Anvil, the story of Anvil. Oh, that's a great film. It's a great film about a band who I have no interest in, in uh, other than that, because they are kind of a kind of a hair metal that I has never appealed to me, and also they're not a particularly good variation of the hair metal scene. But it is such a kind of wonderful portrait of people who... Uh, you know, at, at a very young age, decided they were going to be the biggest rock stars in the world. They kind of got tantalizingly close at one point, but then it didn't happen for them. And then they're just still at it because it's what they love to do, and they still want to keep doing it as as long as they can. And they get to go around the world. And I think of, I imagine things must have improved for them at this point, just on the strength of the documentary. Mm. But you do get a sense from that documentary of of who they are, why they perhaps didn't succeed in the way that like an iron maiden or a metallica ended up doing but also uh, you come away with just kind of great affection for them even if you don't like the music you kind of feel like okay these guys do seem like decent guys even if they're maybe misguided and they make terrible decisions in terms of their career mm. it's funny because when you watch it they're so you can watch it with such affection because it is essentially a real spinal tap because they yeah. do get lost backstage. <laughs> they get lost driving to a gig, don't they? And they turn up and everyone's left because yeah. they didn't know where they were going. Um, and they're playing and... to empty beer halls in Germany and things like that. And I remember watching it with someone and within the first 10 minutes, they turn to me and say, is this real? Because mm. it does feel, um, it, you know, it does feel like a, a mockumentary that has a lot of verisimilitude to it. But it is, like you say, it is genuinely like a real spinal tap. Mm. And just side point, um, I kind of grew up thinking Spinal Tap were a real band because I, did as well. <laughs> um, I my first encounter with Spinal Tap was um, they played the Freddie Mercury tribute concert after he died, which must have mm. been maybe ninety two, ninety three, and yeah. they just played a set in the middle, and I just thought, oh, oh, okay, it's these guys, Spinal Tap. I've not heard of them, but. They must be a band, I guess. And then years later, they re-released the film, I think, in kind of the late 90s. And someone actually had to sit me down. This is embarrassing. Kind of, I was, you know, studying film at university and someone had to say, yeah, that's not a real band, dude. That's that's a joke. And then we went to see the film and I was like, ah, I get it now. But still, they wrote pretty good songs. Yeah, I had a similar thing where I'd I'd heard the name Spinal Tap and I was walking through HMV and there was a thing which was like, they had a Spinal Tap album or several Spinal Tap albums because I think they've put out a few over the years. And in my mind, I thought, oh, a fake band couldn't put out an album, not really <laughs> knowing about like Tenacious D or anything like that. This was like, this would have been like the late 90s or the early 2000s. So I hadn't really encountered the idea of like a comedy band who could actually tour, like a Flight mm. of the Concords or something. And yeah, like someone, I've mentioned like them being real in conversation with someone and I have never had the piss taken out of me quite as much as I did at that point, thinking they were a real band and for having the the slimmest justification for thinking that they were a real band, which is that they put out an album. Like, yeah. 
anyone could put out an album. They don't need to be a real person. The chipmunks put out albums. They've got an umlaut over the eye. That, yeah. <laughs> they must be real. But so Motorhead have got one over the O, so, you know, whatever. What about um, fictional portrayals of fictional musicians or fictional rock stars? How well do they do? Normally it kind of makes me cringe when mm. there is a uh, kind of bit in a film that happens. But then I think about something like Inside Lewin Davis, which is yep. it draws heavily on real people um, and is it's got Oscar Isaac in it, so it can't be bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, like the the worst example I could think of, just because it has the most generic name possible, would be Rockstar of Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, which is just a collection of cliches that has no uh, individuality to it. It doesn't really feel like anyone involved has, no one involved has even read a biography of a real musician. You know, let alone actually maybe interviewed people or looked into this stuff. It really does feel like a movie that has been cobbled together from stories about other musicians or has been cobbled together from watching movies about musicians uh, and it just hits all of these cliches like back to back similar another one would be something like country strong the movie with gwyneth paltrow where she plays a country music singer uh which is just like hitting all these beats of like what you would expect a movie about a troubled country singer to be like on the, the kind of the positive side you'd have something like and i mentioned it at the start of the show tender mercies with robert duval which is a lovely small well-observed movie about a kind of an aging musician someone who is like is respected because they write good songs and they're a good performer but has never really been successful or famous and where the focus is more on like their inner life than on like trying to fulfill people's desire to watch stories of like rock star excess which always fall flat because you just kind of feel like you can only show so much of this stuff that people would get more kind of salacious details reading like a biopic of like Led Zeppelin or something. You can never possibly deliver what people want uh, that an actual documentary or an actual document about a real band would offer them. How important is it, Ed, to have actors playing musicians who are in some way musical ta- musically talented? I mean, we, we mentioned uh, Oscar Isaac there, who can do no wrong in uh, Inside Lewin Davis. He sings all the songs he plays all the songs and obviously he is a immensely talented and beautiful man that uh, I can't stop thinking about uh, my every waking moment but I think about that film which I love but then also I think about another film I love which is Sweet and Low Down the Woody Allen film about a jazz guitarist uh, who may or may not be inspired by Django Reinhardt Um, and the lead in that is Sean Penn who can't play an instrument and uh, he kind of uh, just gets through it with acting and energy and um, kind of emotion rather than us being obsessed by what he's actually doing with his fingers on the fretboard. I do think that it can be incredibly... Uh, it, having someone who can play an instrument is incredibly useful in terms of um, it's one less thing you have to worry about, I think, in the pre-production process, because obviously Sean Penn couldn't play jazz guitar to the extent that a Django Reinhardt could be, but he obviously learned just enough to do well when they made the film. Uh, mm. And that's, you know, useful. That's That's a good skill to be able to have and for someone to pick up but I feel like it do, it can add an extra texture to it, having someone who is at least skilled enough to do all the stuff on camera because it, it adds that extra level of verisimilitude to it. You know, if you are constantly, like, cutting away to, like, just hands without a face and you can tell, okay, that's like a session musician they brought in to play this part or it's clearly just post-synced, like, afterwards, yeah, you do lose something. And it's like when you watch a film and you have someone playing um when you have someone playing like a real life musician and then 
as soon as they get on stage they like you, you don't hear their voice singing it just goes to like oh that's the studio recording of them recording that album you do lose something because you take away a certain element of humanity from their performance and i feel like it's less bad having someone who can't play their instrument than just kind of like replacing someone's voice uh, but it does it still does kind of take away a little bit Mm. I think there's there's a great book that uh, is written by David Mamet and it's called uh, Bambi versus Godzilla. I'd mm. recommend That's a great anyone book. read it. It's uh, kind of got like a lot of uh, uh, kind of truths about Hollywood and kind of stupid things about movies and kind of things that annoy David Mamet and things that he has learned about films mm. from his various years working in them. And one of the things he says is he always hates, and he calls it the shot, where you see someone sat at a piano you're told that their character is a piano player. Mm-hmm. You can see their face, and then they will slowly pan down so you can see their hands, and uh, just so they know the actor knows that they are playing. and And he kind of blames it in his book as being about ego and actors. But I think you're right; it does jar you out of it. But at the same time, you can get through it. Um, like for instance, in the film Whiplash, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really good film from from kind of last year, Miles Teller is a drummer in real life. He's a very talented drummer but he does not play all the drums in that. And that film is edited so well that he, you can get away with it. Um, but then it jars when you see J.K. Simmons playing the piano and he's supposed to be this kind of jazz great, good enough to kind of teach people at a prestigious university. And it looks like the shot mm-hmm. of them panning down from J.K. Simmons and showing him playing a few very basic chords when he's supposed to be a jazz musician. Yeah, it definitely feels like if you have a situation where someone is talented enough or they they play their instrument well enough that you can show them doing it on screen um or they learn like 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 michael j fox in back to the future where i don't think he knew how to play guitar before they started shooting but he learned how oh, he, he could play some but not yeah chuck berry solos you know yeah but he he kind of learned he kind of improved well enough that he could play it on camera and it looks it looks real enough uh and that's mm. that's obviously really important because it helps it means they can do stuff in like wide shots that show him kind of like running around the stage. You get a sense of everything. You're not constantly just like I say, just kind of cutting to a close up of the fretboard or something like that, which does take away from the energy of it. Uh, if you do have someone who can do the thing on camera and it looks good, then you know that you can do it. But if you have someone who's cast because they're a really good actor, but they can't actually play their instrument, then it's, it's fine just to kind of let the editing do the work for you. And to just kind mm. of work around it because there clearly what you want is the performance as opposed to the ability to play an instrument because ultimately, unless you're making like an actual full-blown musical where you need everyone to be singing all the time, uh, the important thing in, in kind of telling a story about a musician is that, you know, the acting works and that you sell the inner life. Mm. I think the, the classiest way to do it is to, if like, for instance, it's playing guitar, you get the actor who can't play guitar and they stand with their hands behind their back and someone who can play the guitar puts their hands through, you know, where their armpits are right, yeah. and plays for them, like in Whose Line Is It Anywhere? I think that would probably be... No, no one would ever notice that. That would be kind of seamless. You could probably CGI the sleeves, I guess. But yeah. I, oh, I was thinking you just do it as like a real Dogville sort of thing where it's like <laughs> there's no there's no sets or anything and when you need someone to play and they can't, you do just have to have like someone clearly in view standing behind playing it for them. Yeah, I think everything should be made by Dogville just so we know how authentic it is um, at all times. Yeah, I'd like to see a dog-filled kaiju film where it's just yeah. like two people not wearing any suits, just kind of very slowly walking to each other and throwing very lazy punches. 
Mm. Basically yeah, like yeah. being outside like a kebab shop on a Friday. Mm, kebab shop kaiju. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a good name for a band if we need one. Oh, yeah, that's something that I thought about like earlier. This is nothing to do. I'm just going to sign off the show with this because uh, I think it's great. But like we had Spice World and we had the All Saints doing Honest. I was thinking of like further in the kind of series of films made by kind of British girl groups by having a film called Eternals Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that if someone hasn't made that already, they should just get on with it. I'm sure Dave Stewart's available. Yeah, I mean, he's not he's not currently got any projects in the work, according to his IMDb. Um, Also, I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show or I just mentioned this to you, but Dave Stewart's biography came out fairly recently and I picked it up in Barnes and Noble and I went straight to the to see if there was an index just index just to see if there was any mention of honest and I couldn't see one. So mm. I think he's already trying to whitewash history. Yeah, it's been expunged. Um and rightly so, it's it's an embarrassment. But anyway. So uh yeah, uh that's rock and roll this week, kids. What have we got for recommends? Uh a few weeks ago, uh this was obviously gonna be more in recommendation when last we were gonna record. Uh so it's been a few weeks since I saw it, but I went to go and watch the Key and Peel vehicle, Keanu, which is a film that was had a lot of fanfare, I think, because obviously Key and Peel through their sketch show and the many clips of it that ended up becoming huge viral sensations have kind of a big following and then it came out and it didn't really do anything and it hasn't done terribly well in the US and it probably won't do too well outside of the US because they're basically not much of a phenomenon uh, outside of the internet it seems. But it's really funny. It's a really good uh, action movie because it's directed by Peter Atencio who was their director on their sketch show and he was kind of the guy who was responsible for helping them to recreate all the various kind of things they would parody. He was always someone who was very attuned at capturing the look and the feel of certain kinds of movies. So the action in the movie is both genuinely exciting as kind of an action movie, but also pitched at a kind of level of ridiculousness that is actually really, really funny. There's an opening fight scene that takes place in a church where a, a, an incredibly, incredibly cute kitten that is kind of the... <laughs> MacGuffin of the whole thing is dodging like bullets and stuff and it's really funny and for anyone who's kind of a fan of Key and Peele their their interplay of each other and the kind of milieu they play in as kind of two mixed race guys who have always said that they have to code switch all the time they have to go from acting a certain way around white people and a certain way around black people the idea of two very kind of uh middle-class boring guys having to descend into a world of kind of hardened killers is like perfectly fitted to what they do and it's really really funny watching them try to embody all of these cliches and uh, it's got a great cameo by a movie star playing themselves which i won't spoil uh, it's not keanu reeves which would have been the obvious one there is someone else who shows up who i didn't know was in it who is really really funny playing an exaggerated version of themselves uh which is uh, one of the many things that the film does really, really well and uh, recommends it as a, maybe not a comedy classic, but certainly a film that deserved to do a lot better than it has. Mm. I mean, I, I kind of doubt we'll see that over here mm. um, in any wide release way, but if it sneaks onto your local independent, it sounds like uh, a good chuckle to be had. Um, I'm also going to recommend a, a comedy um, and one that I was thinking about a lot given last week's um, issues with our communication um, and the kind of breakdown thereon of the, the kind of the technical aspects of recording something across an ocean. 
Um, I'm going to recommend a film, an Australian film from the year 2000, um, which if you don't like, you're probably a heartless bastard. It's a film called The Dish, which is a uh, very funny, very warm, very charming uh, Australian film which tells the true story of a small group of scientists who operate a NASA relay satellite um, that in 1969... um, broadcast uh, the signal that uh, meant that the moon landing could be seen by the world at large um, and it's a very funny look at uh, the the kind of the eyes of the world looking at this one tiny backwater um, town with this uh, this uh, big huge satellite dish which is in the middle of a sheep paddock obviously um, and how the kind of pressures of, of getting it together and kind of also being having a bit of cabin fever and stuck in one place but also being in a ostensibly tiny uh, Australian town where everything is hilarious because it's so kind of like twee and funny. Um, but it's got Sam Neill in it and uh, Patrick Warburton. And it's directed by a team of four people, which is uh, led by a guy called Rob Stitch, who also directed a film called The Castle, which if you haven't seen that, it's a very funny Australian comedy. Um, and I think he made those two films back to back. And they're both kind of very winsome, um, and uh, yeah, kind of perfect Sunday afternoon fair. Uh, and I watched it again this week, uh, kind of inspired by the technical problems we were having. And um, it still managed to put a smile on my face, given that, like, yeah, it's that obviously the stakes were a little higher for them because they're dudes on the moon were like playing golf and we needed to see it. Yeah, that's a, a great, great movie that I have a lot of affection for. It was one of the first DVDs that we ever owned when we got a DVD player. And oh, wow. It was a film that. Uh, I had never heard of, and well, over the and I only knew Sam Neill from it, um, obviously because of Jurassic Park, and uh, yeah, it was one of those films where you just kind of you you where you genuinely stumble across something because it it was just given to us, I think, with the DVD player, or someone bought it to us for us because they they heard that we had a DVD player, and just watching it and thinking this is like lovely, this is really funny and really charming, and it's a great story, uh, mm. and I I would second your recommendation that it's a a terrific movie. Yeah, at uni, like the castle was a big favourite of yeah. ours. We watched it a lot, and then we were at uni when the dish came out, and it, it showed in at the cinema, and we all kind of went to see it, and it doesn't disappoint. Both those films are on Netflix, by the way, if you want to check them out. I think on UK, US, wherever, um, get them seen. Charming, funny. What more could you want? Well, that's your lot, everyone, on the subject of rock and roll. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you very much enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at underscore, oh, sorry, at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook as well, and at our website, which is srspodcast.com. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.